You gotta have a podcast. 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 What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to You Gotta Have a Podcast. I'm Angela Palladino, and I got another great episode here for you today. I'm really excited about this one because we cover a huge variety of topics that sort of run the gamut of many different assets of the entertainment industry and the creative work that we do. Today, I am joined by actor, writer, musical comedy mastermind, Doug Wydick. Doug is a founding member of the hip-hop improv team North Coast and co-creator and star of the live show Toxic Masculinity the Musical, which ran off-Broadway for nearly a year in 2019 through 2020, and it was a damn good show. <laughs> Doug and I have collaborated before on a number of projects, and he is such a hard-working, hilarious, committed, and driven, and just kind human being. And it was such a joy to just sit down and talk with him about the industry and creativity and hurdles and gatekeepers and and really just all the bullshit. Because these are the types of conversations that Doug and I have when we go out to lunch, which, you know, we haven't done in a year because of the pandemic. But it was nice to have a one-on-one -on -one hour with him, which we really got into it and really dug deep. And I think you're going to love this conversation because I did too. I know I say that every time, but God damn it, it's true. It is so fucking true. <laughs> Here is my conversation with Doug Wydick. Ken and I are trying to write our pilot now because we know when things pick up again in a like super official way, we, we mm -hmm. had a lot of momentum. And so we're trying to make sure that we have like our pockets full when the world reopens. But Depending yeah. on your level of success, the world has reopened. Like, I feel like people who were booking are booking mm -hmm. again. Like, people who had, like, the super dope agents and stuff. But yeah, I feel like people who are, like, that one step, like, towards, like, not always having to audition for stuff, like, getting offers, we're, mm -hmm. like, we're in purgatory <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like, even just hardened that heartened not hardened you're hardened, hardened. you're <laughs> such a bro i'm just like glad to see that auditions are coming back i know you were like doing like you seem like the type of person who like when there is downtime you're like fuck it i'm gonna like get all my 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 shit together to cobble something together even though it's like this weird nothing is happening time and like you started i noticed you were working on like your very own song so much more like, personally, mm -hmm. I was, like, getting my shit together as far as audio editing and, like, redoing my resume and all that sort of thing. Nice. Is that, do you, like, did you feel that kind of, like, momentum to at least get your ducks in a row? <laughs> totally, yeah. I was like, okay, what, where do my skills intersect where that I can make money remotely and have some sort of business model that's, like, scalable? Because North Coast is scalable, right? I don't have to mm -hmm. be there for every North Coast show. but. That is something that I can create that is like me at my desk. And and I was trying to just generate like whatever I could because um, I was also like working all day when it was teaching and teaching is like to anybody here listening right now who's never taught before know this your teacher is working so hard <laughs> teaching <laughs> is the intense mental energy it is straight up spending 
it's the most, one of the most valuable assets you have, which is your mental energy. Um, and if it's, if your student is being uh, unappreciative of that, that sucks. Um, but with very own song, like I got really kind of like, and still am, uh, like obsessed with the idea of making it a bigger and better thing. And very mm-hmm. own song is, it's like this weird thing where it's like, it exists. Like obviously you can get custom jingles from all sorts of places, but I've made it personal, but also comedically based. And you're not getting the song from a songwriter. You're getting it from a comedian. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's my unique kind of value proposition. So yeah, I started spending way more time on that. And I was like, whether this contributes to the, my industry standing and my branding or not, which I actually do think it helps with my social media branding because people are like, Oh, right. Doug does write songs. Um, yeah. But whether it helps with like getting, you know, whatever lines on a 30 minute sitcom, I feel like very own song is something that as I build and develop the website and the business system when orders come in and like a, a big list of songwriters and make more tracks and beats. Like I'm building an asset that I actually have control and power over, which is mm-hmm. a very rare thing in our world. So one thing that I've always been bothered by is like when you're auditioning, you are literally the bottom of the totem pole. And that's just always kind of bugged me. Like I've always just been like, Oh, so we're nothing. We are, we have no, like, we're not like uh, you could try to see a thousand actors and they'll all show up. And like it, it, like, I just feel like I know so many wonderfully intellectual, talented actors who regularly don't book. And yeah. And I've always felt like I was like, can't there be some sort of like, and this doesn't exist and it never will exist, but can't there be (laughs) some sort of like, certified like been at it for a while like badge where it's like look i didn't just show up to new york yesterday and they would never do that because there are great people who show up to new york yesterday but sometimes it does kind of bug me out when i'll go on a commercial audition and i'll be in the room with someone who's clearly never auditioned before and like one time i know i've been on change the subject like six times in one answer i apologize no please (laughs) um well, one time I was in an audition and a woman slapped me and oh no, it, it was like fake slap. You're supposed to do a fake slap if you're going to do that. Right. And it like derailed the whole thing and it was just awful. And then in another audition, um, a woman negated every single offer I made and it was an improv based audition. <laughs> and I even, uh, posted about it and i got a phone call from the casting director later that day being like we want you to come back and do it again with someone who yes ands you and so <laughs> i got to do it again but auditioning that's just, good at least yeah yeah I, I know casting directors do their best to like do groups and pairings and stuff based on like look and experience and stuff but sometimes it does feel um yeah sometimes it does feel where it's like i guess it's also like a non-union and union thing where it's like sometimes you audition with people who it just feels like they haven't done many auditions before and that's okay too sometimes there's fun in that and i'm not judging it it's just sometimes it's like you know our time is valuable and so it's like going in auditions where you either feel like you don't have a real shot at getting it based on the breakdown or you're in the room with someone who's kind of sabotaging the take those can be frustrating moments it's so frustrating. The last commercial audition I did um, before COVID that wasn't VO was literally 
there was storyboards on the like sides that they gave us in the it was like a cartoon drawing of Nicole Byer. It was literally Nicole Byer. And like in the waiting room was like every white girl UCB comedian. Like it was like me and Carly and Philbin and like oh my God. a bunch of other people. And we were like, why are we here? Like they oh want Nicole God. Byer. Like we are not Nicole Byer. <laughs> we're nowhere near her type. Like I just don't understand. Oh my and God. It was so it was like it was truly like almost a photographic like storyboard. Is, it was just a picture like, of her. And we were just like, we're not right for this. Like, who the fuck brought us in for this? Yeah. Like, I don't know. And and then we went in and they were like, Yep, you're not what we're looking for. <sighs> like it was like very clear the moment you step in the door and their eyes sunk again because it was like another not what they were looking for person right. and it was just like do, it was like, so it's so weird like do you ever feel like there is a lot of collected collective time wasting wasted oh yeah all the fucking time yeah so many things like sometimes i'm like you know what you want you, you yeah like you you did it like I, I i respect what the union tried to do where they make it so that you see a certain amount of people for every role but sometimes mm-hmm. i feel like that's actually not good no yeah I agree. I mean, it. the thing is that rule of like seeing a certain amount of people is is it's just wasting everyone's time. Like in theory, it's like, wow, someone could really surprise you. But I think like especially like directors or casting agents, you know, unless they specifically say we don't know what we want, mm-hmm. they know what they want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And like, and also they're not, I feel like there isn't, um, always the strongest sense where it's like the CDs report to the directors and the producers Mm -hmm. and like, and it's like sometimes like that, that you're like, okay, well, are you recommending people? Like, I know that they have, they, they have a list of people, but like, how much does that matter? And I do know Mm -hmm. that casting, casting directors have more of a say than ever. Like they're even starting to get awards and stuff. I think Maisel and like some shows are starting to like get awards for casting, but um, you do get a sense sometimes where it's like, let's get the director in here and like, let's get your top seven and like pick from there. Yeah. Like I get it. I get why the system is the way it is. It's very formalized right now. And I know people would complain if it was any other way and if it was more direct. And sometimes it is direct and the offers are direct. And that's cool. Um, but yeah, I do feel the collect like the time we I'm like, man, we could uh we could solve some serious problems in the world with all the time we're spending. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean Uh, weirdly like on the back end of that like I produce and direct and I mostly direct commercials but I produce a lot of branded content for other big agencies Mm -hmm. and I will be producing for a different director who will have me get go out for tapes like 15 different times and we'll look at so many people and I'm just like it's just like a weird pickiness that's just like it this is a branded content spot that's gonna get like six hundred views on YouTube. Like just pick one of these very qualified fine people. Like what the fuck are like yeah. is, you're not <laughs> right. That's why I did direct with the combos thing. I was like, oh yeah, you know that was really fun. But I was like, I was like, I'm not gonna 
hold auditions for this. I know so many comedians. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. going to email people directly. Wait, if if I if I have like a client, especially a commercial or branded thing that I'm directing that like I'll have I'll ask people I know specifically that I want to do it. Like, I know plenty of very talented actors and comedians. I'll be like, can you just put yourself on tape? Like, I really want you. I just have to like convince the client. Um, But the only time I've ever had to actually like hold like a call was when I shot a commercial in Minneapolis last year and we were shooting locally and I didn't know anybody in Minneapolis. So I, like, oh, right. Had to right. Yeah. With- I remember that. And like you had issues <laughs> yeah. with the crew, too, didn't you? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, this was like I was I hired an on the ground Minneapolis producer who was prepping with me the whole time. I hired her way in advance. And uh, then this other director who is local in Minneapolis was like, got a gig like the three or four days before my shoot and then took my producer and took my whole crew because it was like my producer's go to people. And they were all like, sorry, but like you're probably never going to shoot something here. And this person hires us all the time. So um, we're going to just bail on you and take the work from this person that we work with all the time. And I was like. Fuck. But I mean, luckily, that producer was really apologetic and she replaced herself with another great producer on the ground there who then recruited me up in like a day and we were back on our feet and it was fine. Yeah. But it was just like really shitty because I was like, these people signed deal like I not to get too in the weeds with the the production stuff. I'm like, you guys signed deal memos like. Yeah, I'm not going to fight you if you don't want to be on my set, like because you could just not show up anyway and screw me. But like you signed a deal memo like you you said you would be my crew like. Right. You already gave me a W9. Like, yeah. What the hell? And you were going to pay them. Did they just. Yeah, it was very well paid. It was union. Okay. (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, that's just that's like the fleeting nature of what we do you know like a dental hygienist doesn't show up there's serious repercussions to that but Mm -hmm. you like someone doesn't show up for their local grip thing they're gonna get hit up again because there's you know not many grips or i don't know but it feels like yeah the job i mean especially they were like they were like we don't know you you're from new york you're coming in town to shoot this one time and you may never come back here and shoot anything again so we're gonna go drop you for this guy who always hires us because we don't want to make him mad, basically. Allegiances. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So weird how that, like, that is such a thing for, like, the whole industry. It's I, one of the things that I regret not, like, it wasn't, like, direct piece of advice, but it was, you know, people are always like, it's all about networking. It's all about networking. And I'd be like, yeah, it is. And, like, I would try to network and, like, be really friendly to people on set and work with them or whatever. But there's also this like different part of networking that's in, in the industry too. That's like less like business networking and more like you like you're out at the bar with these people all the time. That's why they're booking you on whatever show or whatever it is. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The nepotism, I mean, is let's be real here. It's like 90% of who works with who you'll watch Mm -hmm. shows and you'll be like, Oh, those people are, all friends like yeah. they were friends before they got famous now they're friends now and they're all 
booking and working with each other. And so when the UCB would like be like showbiz, oh well, the U, they would say the theater was a meritocracy. I think they never, ah, they, no. yeah, they never said that the <laughs> they never said that the show business was a meritocracy because I think they would know how silly that sounded. Because mm-hmm. it is it is not a meritocracy. It is a place where people work with who they want to work with once they have the ability to do so mm-hmm. and the budgets to do so. And then if there are spots where they don't know who they want to work with, then they go and search and interview and hire. Mm-hmm. But like networking, like going out to bars, mm-hmm. I feel like that phase of my development like i don't love that anymore like i used to be like Mm -hmm. oh let me talk to like oh that team is going out for drinks like that improv team or that sketch group they're all at mcmanus like that phase was of that's like a very like uh kind of emotionally exhausting socially like intense thing to do i much prefer like five people going out Mm -hmm. who like don't know each other very well but like be like hey I've always seen you around. Like, why don't us three hang out? Like a very targeted networking. Yeah. I love that. Like I hung out with Glow Tavares uh, recently Ugh. and we just would How go. How's she doing? She's, she good? Well, it was before <laughs> COVID, but we would hang out oh, but before yeah. we were friends. I was just like, I just was like, I want to be your friend. Let's hang out. And we went and mm-hmm. got hot dogs. And like, now we do these hot dog hangs a couple times a year. And it's just like, it's so funny that like that's how I network with glow and we're also friends, but like that was the way I, w- I chose to get like, instead of like, Oh, I'm just going to go to like some big general mixer, like general mixers. I know they have their purpose, but they definitely mm-hmm. stress me out. <laughs> yeah, no, they stress me out so much too that I'm like, I just don't do them. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a little bit antisocial and I always have been, but I do like hanging out with people. But when it comes to those big, group things Mm -hmm. like I very rarely would just like show up at McManus because even though I knew everyone I'd be like "Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know how yeah but like you I mean now that I think of it though I you did the same thing to me when we were starting to get to know each other um you were just like we should get lunch and I was Mm -hmm. like no someone hasn't asked me to lunch in a while okay let's get lunch yeah (laughs) yeah we went to five napkin burger yeah we did yeah uh, like that's more my speed yeah i i love that like really intentional sort of like also it's just like nicer i i love that sort of thing because i love really like having one-on-one sort of human conversations with people rather than just being in a massive group and only doing bits and then you walk away and you're like I don't know any of these people. <laughs> yeah, it's very performative. Like at McManus, it was like bits and over drinking. And then like there would be that sort of pressure to stay late. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm good. Like I've been here for 90 minutes to two hours. Like I feel like I got what I needed out of this, you know, and maybe that's like maybe I'm the one who's like being a user in that situation. <laughs> and it's like, come on, just like get to know, like you make make these your actual real friends. But sometimes I felt like I was like, oh, are we all hanging out here to avoid working on something like that pilot or that like, yeah, like I get that a lot too at the pit. Like you'll be at the pit late and you're like, everyone's talking about stuff and I get it. You got to blow off steam and like have a drink with your friends or your team post show. That's totally fine. But I'm talking about the people who were there like four, four to five nights a week. I'm like, you're y'all are talking about your favorite comedians 
And that's great. Mm -hmm. But what about like working on you making yourself your favorite comedian? That's much scarier prospect putting in the work. That's the thing. You used to come up doing indie shows or doing shows at theaters where you're not getting paid. And a lot of there's a lot of people in those circles that are really just there for social mm-hmm. aspect. And they're very funny. Yeah. And like they perform really well on stage, but they don't put in a lot of the effort outside of, you know, yeah, attending improv practice or whatever it might be like. Yeah. But then there's a, there's another portion of people that are also there, but they're also the ones that are, you know, working on writing pilots or writing their own stuff sketch shows or you know creating their own stuff outside of like the bar (laughs) after the show yeah and like i'm always more interested in talking to those people because i could like see that they they're like i'm gonna do everything i can to to keep doing this thing that i love and not just as a hobbyist Totally. Yeah. The hobbyist versus like the people who want to pursue comedy professionally has always been Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. Like there's one part of me that's like, yeah, you know, there are every, if you're good, you're good. Right. Then there's the other Mm -hmm. part of me that was like, can that like, can they do it on Mondays through Thursdays? And can we have the weekends? Like if we're the ones trying to get jobs, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like, like, and I know that that is potentially problematic, but the, the truth is, is like, like if I'm working on this, the same amount of hours that I would work on a profession, then I want to mm-hmm. get more stage time. And um, maybe that's selfish. Maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's hard because there are very funny people that are performing at theaters, like improv theaters like that, that yeah. are are more of hobbyists in one way that like they're not doing any other career oriented stuff mm-hmm. other than getting you know spending 10 years getting very good at improv and like yes they're very good at improv they're very funny but like yeah it is it is like you don't seem like you want to or intend to actually have a career that pays do you ever feel do you ever feel like the theaters should take a little more responsibility to push people like out of the nest into writing and characters? i think they should and honestly i i i never th- would say that like maybe four or five years ago, but I feel like because, you know, also fuck me for, for talking about this because I was very much like felt that eventually I realized that I, I was not kind of a fit mm-hmm. for um that sort of style of comedy, like the improv stuff. And then I naturally turned away from it and started doing other things like stand up and writing and you're and, such a and, freaking awesome stand up, by the way. Like, if you haven't seen <laughs> Angela do stand up, Google it right now because she, she's so dang good. <laughs> Thank you. You are. You've got the rhythm and like the point of view and everything. Thank you. I appreciate that. And the thing was, though, like, it was never something I really saw myself doing. And not really even being on stage as a comedian is something I never really saw myself doing. I started as a writer and I was writing like sketching a couple of pilots when I was like really young. And then well, by like, you know, 23, yeah. really young. Um, and then I started doing improv because I wanted to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. And then I just like accidentally was in a cult and obsessed for like <laughs> three years yeah. until I realized like, oh, I don't think I really fit what they're looking for. So I'm going to go do stand up. And then I was like, oh, 
Well, this is working out very well, very fast. And that's lovely. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, the stand up world is like more represents. I'm going to make a weird analogy, but I feel like mm-hmm. the stand up world is more capitalism and the <laughs> improv world is more socialist and communist in that like like in the stand up world, you're funny or you're not. You you know, you, you get the laugh or you don't. And we'll pay you if you're good and get the hell out of here. Or the show's over. Wait, fuck you, we'll never see you again. Uh, <laughs> whereas like in improv, there's a little bit more of like regulated market where it's like, yeah, keep taking these classes. You'll get stage time. Like you might not get on a house team, but you can get on a house team at this place. Like they'll put you on a house team and you mm-hmm. might be able to go for longer, sort of not knowing that you might not be the best. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's okay if you're, pursuing the craft at a level to try to be competitive but the problem is is that if the market lies i hate that i'm using this analogy now i love it okay. I, I actually love okay, it okay great so that i'll keep going <laughs> um but like i just feel like the real-time feedback that's given to you sometimes in improv isn't the truest because yeah a people come to see their friends perform so sometimes you get laughs that aren't real and mm-hmm. uh you don't get that experience of performing in front of people that don't know you which the i feel like the most growing i've ever done as an improviser has been in front of houses that don't know me and that's on the road or weird corporate gigs on weird other audiences that north coast has performed for like that's when i started to be like oh no one's coming to save me and yeah that's when i feel like i started getting better at improv and now After 11 years, I finally feel like I'm at the point where I feel like I can hold my own with very little stress on stage as an improviser. Yeah, completely agree. Like the first time I. I was so trepidatious about performing because I had like I was really like convinced that I was a shitty performer and I was like, what is this about? I was like, I guess maybe I'm just not funny. And I'm only getting laughs at indie shows because my friends are laughing. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing stand up. And the first time I did, I did like a show at Greenwich Comedy Club that it was my first time doing a club show. Like I'd done, I had done like a bunch of mics and I had done like a bunch of like indie shows or some Brooklyn alt shows. But it was my first time doing a club show and club shows are only tourists, mostly. Yeah. There's like the four other, five other comics that are on the lineup. And then all the audience is tourists. Yeah. And I got like good laughs. At a club and I did show. like decently well at a club show. And I was like, oh, okay. These ran like I would much rather perform perform in front of randoms. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, I I know how to like <laughs> make random strangers laugh. I don't know. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. Um, like that that actually is such a valuable lesson, though. It's that mm-hmm. that's one institution's opinion of you. Yeah. Yeah. And and it took me not as long as some other people. It took me like three years to be like, OK, you know, who I am. I've been around for enough time. I've been doing enough shows. I don't think I give a shit about getting any better than I currently am. Yeah. So I'm just going to like dip and try something else. Also. Very few instances, yourself included with North Coast, I was like, almost no one makes a living, a full ass living off of improv. So I got to figure out yeah, 
other ways to make a living as a comedian uh, and, and uh, you know, and a filmmaker, a video person, I got to figure out other avenues to like actually making money. And then, you know, I got into doing stand up, which, you know, I was able to get paid, you Incredible. know, not a full living, but yeah. get get paid for shows and like yeah got into writing more and i got some writing jobs and i'll like, say this like i followed the treadmill until i got on a team i did three years on mod and it's mm-hmm. it, it is fun but like at the same time doing your own projects is the way the industry actually like like if you could make a graph that's like people who got agents from Harold Knight and people who got um, agents and managers from Spanks or stand up, the graph would be completely to the right because it would mm-hmm. all be people who actually created stuff because yeah. those institutions just rarely, rarely were industry coming to them from what I yeah. heard. I mean, that's why, like, the times I would go back and do stuff there, I would do, I would be on, like, some stand-up showcases sometimes. I put up some spanks. And it was all all because, like, I can invite industry to this, and they'll go because it's a reputable theater. Exactly. Like, but, like, this is a, sh- this is not, like, it, it was less about, in, like, trying to be successful in that theater itself, mm-hmm. and more about, like, the perception of like for those gatekeepers of the industry of like, well, you've had running shows at the theater and you like, oh, I saw her do stand up there once and like that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, now none of it matters. <laughs> is this is some form of it going to come back? Like my personal preference would be honestly that like more theaters like IA pop up with like super tight garden, you know, super thin, you know, like it's like you have to do a lot of training and like it's a super tight community and everybody knows each other at the theater and everybody gets paid. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I improv asylum runs. And like, I've always Mm -hmm. thought that that was really cool. I was like, I loved what UCB was and look, I worshiped that place just as much as anybody else, especially 26th street. Like that was Yankee stadium of comedy for my whole twenties until they moved. And, And hell's kitchen was cool for different reasons, but like, the memories I have in, in Chelsea, you know, those are some of the most special comedy memories I have. Right. And I hope that all these theaters that popped up because they were inspired by UCB. I hope that the future is brighter for up and coming comedians to feel like, like they're not on this constant, like, where do I stand? I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate the where yeah. do I stand thing. Yeah, especially when you're in a theater like that, because it's one thing if you are an actor and you're just auditioning out in the world and like you're trying to put up plays or whatever, or like you're in a small theater company or you're just going and doing auditions. It's a little bit easier to, to like be understanding of the where do I stand because it is also nebulous and there's not this one like, deity deciding everything but like when you're in a theater like like UCB where there's like there's a file on you in a back room somewhere and they know how they stand on you right I never looked at my grades I was too scared you're saying that like there is a right way and a wrong way to do comedy and I'm like that is uh stupid 
But I also understand that like they had to write a book and you can't write something called a manual on how to do something if you just like draw a line in the sand somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were so firm and it it works. Game works. And it's definitely like a pattern that emerges naturally. But like Mm -hmm. their codification of it, they never... I actually didn't finish the manual, but I hope they put uh, exemptions section in it because every (laughs) great improviser regularly breaks the rules. That's how you become great. You can't get great if you're still at the, the rung where you're doing everything by the books. Every actually innovative artist takes the routines and rules fucks with them like eddie van halen the whole reason it was such a giant loss to lose him as a guitarist wasn't Mm -hmm. because he was the most rote musician he's on the on an interview on the record saying it's music theory not music law Mm -hmm. you know and so with they should call it improv theory. I think that would actually help a lot of people. It's like, here's the theory we teach and then you can go and do whatever you want. And a lot of teachers eventually would get to that. Once you were in ASPs, they'd be like, yeah, like there's the UCB method, but there's also like slow play and like, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until later that you got sort of there and they, they teach the same sort of thing with their sketch classes. And I was talking to Brian McElhenney recently about like sketch writing and and game and how it's like you can't like if you write a sketch a gamey sketch that is just like game beat game beat game beat it's fucking boring and soulless (laughs) yeah well when i first came to pop roulette that was all i knew how to do and they were all like pretty evolved like especially matt and sudi they had figured out like you have a game and then you write jokes inside of it and also they were being more analytical to like the great sketch shows like whereas i was like i follow ucb i do what ucb says like they were like studying snl at like at the molecular level of like, oh, SNL has a game, but then they're like putting all these little jokes inside of it. And then I started realizing, oh, that's actually what the great UCB teachers do, but they have to in the first levels teach game beat by game beat. All you have is the frame, but you don't have any pictures inside of it. Yeah. And that's like one of the things that I feel like when you go out and you create your own stuff that is not going to be judged for a grade <laughs> or be judged for a run at the theater, yeah. and, like you create your own stuff to just create the best thing that you can. Yeah. That's when it's like you you actually end up pushing yourselves to just be funny. And like right. because every every sketch teacher or sketch writer will tell you like, yes, there's rules. Unless it's funny, like, yeah, unless it's just funny and it breaks all the rules and who cares as long as it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, Neil Casey in my level two was like, you know, what you're doing right there is inherently funny. It's not a game, but that thing you were doing to get laughs, that was funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's why he's so brilliant. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe the best, like one of the best living. I think like I've always like had like there's the best improvisers and then there's the funniest improvisers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Neil is like the most well-rounded between the both of those. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's so great. One thing, um, 
Oh, wait, what was I going to say? Oh, I think I think you should leave is a good example of a show that yeah. uh, it's like, yeah, he obviously knows game, but he's just doing what he wants within it. Do Absolutely. You, do you like chase the social media personal branding thing? Like, have you gotten into the weeds with a lot of people on your podcast about that? I try not to chase it very much. Um, I did for a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was just like, what, who gives a fuck? Like, yeah. one thing I realized with like, uh, like, especially in Twitter and like comedy Twitter and, and just writing jokes is that I can write a joke and it'll be like a fine joke. It'll be funny, whatever. And then someone else with, you know, 10 times as many followers as I have or 20 times Here or a hundred times, literally a hundred times as many followers Here as I have because I have like. 2000 can tweet the same joke word for word almost. And, you know, I'm often I'm it's it's usually a case of parallel thought. It's I'm not saying anyone's stealing my jokes because they're like a lot of times low hanging fruit if it's a Twitter joke. But like someone can with a much, much bigger audience can tweet the same thing that I tweeted and it'll go massively viral. And I'm like, cool, I'm not. I'm not not funny. It's just I don't have the reach. Like, for example, I won't say when this happened, but so it leaves it to a little ambiguity. Uh-huh. But one time I tweeted a joke and like two hours later, one of the head writers of SNL tweeted the same joke oh and it God. went super viral. And I was like, cool. It's a really low hanging fruit joke. It's yeah. like a Twitter joke. It's not meant to be super like pervasive. Does that or person anything. follow so, like, you? Just curious. Um, I don't think they do. Okay. But a very I they might. I know that we're friends on Facebook. Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's Twitter. Um, but I was like that if I had an audience wider, it's like, oh, it's not that my material's bad. It's just that like my two thousand followers I'm only gonna get a few you know, and occasionally I'll have something pop off. But right. like on the regular, I'm not getting like a hundred thousand likes. Precisely. Yeah. I had one viral tweet this year and it was because Akila Hughes yeah. retweeted Love it Akilah. and and it went it yeah. was just like oh right if I had that many followers this wouldn't be so hard um so the, yeah that's like part of why I'm chasing it all is because it's just like giving yourself a follower base who can you know see your see your stuff yeah yeah i mean that's so funny that you say that because i had one very very viral tweet this year as well that to the point where i was like i don't know what to do i don't know how to act oh yeah and, <laughs> and it, it was, can be scary and it was be- yeah, yeah. And it was because akila retweeted it oh my god really <laughs> yeah we should send her a fruit basket <sighs> yeah we'll send her a fruit basket in california <laughs> yeah oh my god yeah, it is. It is so weird. Like I recently like just got turned off my Instagram for a couple of days and my Twitter for a couple of days because I was like, I can't fucking look at this shit anymore. It just makes me sad sometimes, especially because like I see people it, it, there's like this icky sort of desperation sometimes with people's posts. Yeah. Um, Especially more on Instagram where I'm like. I know you like I know you you're not like my best friend, but I know you well enough to know that like this isn't your personality. And it's like really kind of ew to like see you act this way. Not that it's like it's just like not them. So it's like it's not like it's necessarily bad or anything. And I'm just like it's just so strange to see like you like morph into this like 
weird cartoonish version of yourself oh, yeah. on social media. Yeah, and people do like millennial speak, even though they're like yeah. in their 30s. And you're like, mm-hmm. mm, do you really talk that way? And it's like, oh, no, that's like how I talk on social media. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And like, I do wonder what some of the comedians whose whole brand is about around their youth, like who they're going to turn into. Like, and these are people who I came up with and love and admire. I'm like, well, once you have to face the music and you're 35, like when that hits, who like yeah. who you gonna be and like some people i see it not the natural evolution towards like cynical comedy or like positivity gratitude comedy which is i guess a thing because i i definitely do it um mm-hmm. but like like uh, it is interesting to see that social media everyone's constantly constantly chasing youth on it that's so funny you're so right and i think maybe one of the reasons i am not you know, internet famous is because I have been like, truly I've been like a 45 year old woman since I was 18. I'm like, obsessed I just, with that. Like, I just, I make jokes about, like yesterday I made a joke about Greta Garbo and no one got it. I and love I was that. like, well, whatever. <laughs> I missed funny. it. Uh, I'm writing on a show right now. Um, and I had Garbo a joke about show? Elizabeth. T- <laughs> what? The Greta Garbo sketch show. The Greta Garbo sketch show. Yeah, she's coming out of hiding. I, 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 I fucking, I'm writing on this, this A&E show that I was telling you about. Um, that's like for their YouTube channel. So it's like aimed at a younger demographic. And I wrote a joke about Elizabeth Taylor and I got one note from the network on the whole script. And the only note was like, no one's going to understand this Elizabeth Taylor joke. Can you please take it out? And I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. They're like, this is our audience well, doesn't know, know who this is. <laughs> That's insane. (laughs) Yeah, it is so interesting how like it is. And I think that's like kind of goes back to like the the UCB conversation we were having or even just like the auditioning stuff. It's like know your audience and also know what to expect from them. And just because you're not getting the reaction that you want from whoever's in front of you doesn't mean that what you're doing is not good. It just means that like they might. They might not be the people that want to see it. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, so you're like the type of guy who you do a lot of different stuff, but it all like kind of becomes like part of your, for lack of a better word, personal brand. Mm -hmm. Like, because I do think of you as like as a really brilliant performer and improviser, but also a great just like actor comedic actor like not just improv because there are some people that can do improv really well but are not good actors yeah (laughs) um but and you also write and you also make music and you blend that all together by writing musicals and performing in them Mm -hmm. so like do you like do you like think that there's any one set path like one set of stairs to go up or do you think that like like you're building your staircase from different types of wood or, or what, what are your, like, what's your perspective on like that idea? Such a good question. Um, so I think that as toxic as it is, I think social media has now given us the opportunity to wrestle back some control from Mm -hmm. 
the branding part of the conversation. So it used to be like, okay, Britney Spears, she's on the Mickey Mouse Club. Look at this girl. Okay, now we're going to brand her. We're going to put her in pigtails. We're going to make her sing these songs and we're creating this brand around her, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if Britney Spears was coming up now, she might have been posting acoustic covers and she could have been a moody Billie Eilish type on mm-hmm. her own volition. Like Billie Eilish chose her fucking brand, whereas Britney Spears had no say. And so yeah. it's this interesting world we're living in where you can follow the pangs of your own heart a little bit more and yeah. you can decide how you're going to be perceived through these channels where you can get sometimes just as big as audience as the paid work channels, right? You mm-hmm. look at Sarah Cooper, she's getting broadcast network numbers on her Twitter. Yeah. Which is just unreal. And so for me, first off, I, I'm like in my head, I'm, like sometimes I worry that I'm spread too thin because I'm mm-hmm. like doing North Coast, very own song, uh, doing the mod night, like all these things. And I've had a lot of people tell me that I'm spread too thin before. And and the truth mm-hmm. is, is like, yeah, but it's all musical comedy. I've always just been doing musical comedy and musical improv. It's like that's the that's the umbrella it all falls under. Yeah. But um yeah, I think that we we have a really interesting unique moment now to make more decisions around how we want to be perceived now whether people mm-hmm. perceive you that way or not even if you've chosen it is a different conversation because mm-hmm. it's like similar to the Bashemi being like hello fellow teens yeah because people can sniff out when you're choosing something that isn't authentic to you as well yeah absolutely i mean i personally like i like started as like a writer and a filmmaker and like making short films and and writing writing my own material and they were funny and I was like oh well I want to get more into comedy so that I can be funnier at this because I can't tell you how many really funny scripts I've seen completely die in production or even worse they got shot right and then someone who is not a comedian or does not have good sense of comedic sensibilities edits it. Oh no. And it just fucking dies. Like yeah. so much of funny stuff that you see on TV is directors who are comedians or have great comedic sensibilities and editors who are comedians and have great comedic sensibilities. Because if you do not have that, I don't care how hilarious the script was when it left the writer's room and how hilarious the actors were. You have nothing. Yeah. And so I was like, if I want to work in films and television and I want to like write and create television, like that's my ultimate goal is to like show run things. So your dream is to be a showrunner? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think when I started to be like, oh, wow, like all of my favorite shows were created by this like same like few people and like, oh, cool. Like, I think I want to do that. And then I realized that those people are writers. First and foremost, but they're also producers and they're also directors and they need to have a really good understanding of, especially with comedy, like those people are very funny people. Like you can't be not funny and and show run. (laughs) Oh yeah. 90% of the time the people show running could be in it if they wanted to, but they are needed for big picture problems. And so, you know, 
they these are people who these are uber humans to steal from the language of the book. Oh, what's it called by Thomas Lennon writing movies for fun and profit. Um, in that book, <laughs> they use this term u- uber humans to describe producers because the truth is, is it's in a, these are impossible jobs. There's literally too many things to get done in these jobs. So it requires yeah. a special level of like, you don't get stressed as easily. You enjoy the sort of like adrenalized hustle of a long shoot and you can do it all over again the next day. Well, my my thought on it is that like because I do all these different things, it makes my very niche skill that much stronger. Yeah. Like I'm a better producer and director because I've spent time working in the camera department and I've spent time in front of the camera and I've spent time as an editor. Yeah. So like I know how to talk to all those different departments as a director better. Like <laughs> I heard there was a good book recently about how it's like actually specializations, not the tool because hi- like if you combine multiple skills, then you have like a unique Com- combination on understanding of your main skill the way you just said it and like yeah. James Clear talks about it in Atomic Habits he talks about how you can either be the best at one thing or you can be the best at two things simultaneously in a that are unique to each other yes like that's the argument of uh like generalists and why being a generalist is actually a, a benefit uh you know there's You need to be like a medium level generalist. You don't want to be like a brush of like a Wikipedia page of each skill. You want to be like at least a couple of textbooks of each skill generally. And then Mm -hmm. you find yourself in a really like uber position. Um, Or you can get two in the weeds and be just someone who somehow miraculously, I don't even know if it's possible to be like an expert on, you know, say five different skills. I don't think you can. Yeah. That, but that's also why what we do is collaborative. Like, you yeah. know. Yes, exactly. D- uh, enough to be able to give good notes, to be able to do mm-hmm. it yourself if needed, but you don't consider yourself an expert. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, I mean, that'd be like me, like walking up to, you know, the ghost of Eddie Van Halen and being <gasps> like, oh, yeah, I rip on guitar, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, OK, show me. And then you play Twinkle Twinkle, little star. Yeah. No, that's 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 Wikipedia page. You play. Um, I play Wonderwall. There you go. <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, are there? I'm wondering too, like how it is so funny that we sort of stumble into these things that you end up kind of doing that maybe broaden your experience. Like, are there have there ever been any like unforeseen like outcomes for you from like maybe a thing that you kind of were like forced to do because, you know, an agent or manager told you to do it, but then it ended up actually being something really beneficial or really even just joyful for you. Interesting question. (laughs) I mean, a lot of my music production work has been a means to an end, like, you know, wanting songs for things I'm working on. And so like, Mm -hmm. I've been studying piano merely out of just trying to be able to be better at creating songs that I'm, that I sing on and then perform in front of the camera. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was an agent or a manager per se that ever recommended something for me that I was like, Oh wow, this ended up being a passion of mine. Yeah. But I feel like 
with pop roulette, my music skills were for like, especially production, like pop sounds and stuff. I was like Mm -hmm. forced to level up. I was like, Mm -hmm. it was like level up or, or like be okay with mediocrity. And Mm -hmm. so, um, I, I definitely, um, I definitely feel like that was a skill that was like something that I unintentionally went from good to great at. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, it's not like I've ever had a casting director say like whistle. I mean, I was like wearing stubble <laughs> for a little bit in my mid twenties, which looking back, I'm like, no, uh, <laughs> but, but like they would regularly ask me to shave. And now that I'm older, I'm like, oh yeah, they were right. And so <laughs> like, that was something. And then, um, yeah, 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 I guess like that's the main stuff. I'm actually curious before you, um, created, um, fuck boys, had you written a musical before or was that the first musical that you'd written? I hadn't written any full length musicals. I wrote the music mm-hmm. for the dead dads club, which ran at UCB. Yeah. I had done music for Maud night, like a lot. <laughs> and we had done like <laughs> sketches, musical sketches. And then I, we had done popular amazing earth, which I did a right. lot of the music for. But when it came to any full length musical shows, I don't think so. So was that like a new sort of experience like for you fully or was it just like really easy and natural since you had already been writing individual sketches that had music in them and then you and Ken just sort of pieced them together? It took a whole year. We started in March 2018 and finished and did our spank in April 2019. Mm-hmm. And it we would write all the songs first, every single song. And well, first we outlined the story. Then we mm-hmm. wrote the songs that would each scene would conclude on. Um, and it would force us to decide the game of the song. Um, instead of like the writing the scene and then having to emerge out of the scene, we would have really strong games in each song. And then we worked backwards and wrote the scenes. Oh, interesting. That's a really cool. It was cool. And I was sort of like, are you sure you want to do that, Ken? And he was like, yep, that's how we're doing it. And I was like, "Uh, uh, okay. And he had listened to like a bunch of Broadway podcasts. He's like, people don't know this about Ken McGraw. He's the biggest Broadway fan I I know. He listens to all these like (laughs) talking Broadway podcasts. And so uh, Broadway beat, you know, five steps Mm -hmm. to 42nd Street podcast (laughs) and um (laughs) and so yeah so he was like no and this a lot of people say this is how they do it on the podcast and i was just like oh oh okay Uh, all right then then that's how we'll do it then and so that's how we did it well it worked it was not easy (laughs) (laughs) hard work that's yeah a lot of hard work it is so funny and uh, i'm so glad that you guys were able to have a, a nice long run at the theater before Everything went to shit because uh, you did your how long did you run? Almost a year. Yeah, like nine months. It was it yeah. was it was wild. It was special, though. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's great. Like I had been right before. This is actually funny. In, in retrospect, I had been working on a spank with a with a few people for a year. We started in March 2019 and we had one spank in September of 2019 and we got some really great notes and we got like really positive feedback so we made our tweaks but then the holidays happened and we finally got our our next pink date was march 16th 2020 and we had our tech oh boy. and then the show just never happened because the it just never down. happened oh um, my god 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. Um, we had the first spank and it was really wonderful and we have a video of it. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, a video is an asset, you know, once you have tape, then you can like pitch it in places to like for a run. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever that starts happening again, oh, you know, man. in 2025. So depressing. I know that like this year has been really weird and beginning of quarantine everyone was like you got to be working on your your whatever and like take this time and use it while like wisely and and then a couple months in people were like don't beat yourself up if you're too sad to do anything it's okay <laughs> yeah um but like what 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 are your thoughts on like even just like trying to do what we do and what we're meant to do in these like very strange set of circumstances well i'm definitely a deep believer and habit and trying to just, whether it's good or bad, writing every day, no matter what, <laughs> whatever you shit out is valid. And there's no such thing. I just got this from Seth Godin. There's no such thing as writer's block. There's only fear of bad writing. And so if you just allow yourself to crap it out, whether it's good or bad, you don't have to release it. Right. And a lot of people are being f- f- uh, forced mm-hmm. to confront their demons now. And I think that this was really hard for a lot of people, especially people who had momentum before it felt our brains don't understand the difference between mm-hmm. no for a reason and no. It, to me, it felt mm-hmm. like I failed, but yeah. I didn't fail. The world broke. And so be kind to yourself, build new habits and stick with those because those habits are going to be the thing. That when mm-hmm. the going's good again, you'll have. And if you can create new habits in a pandemic, you sure as hell can create them when there isn't one. And so I think if you if you make those promises with yourself and you get that accountability, buddy, and you make that tra- habit tracker, that's one wonderful way to keep the yeah, keep the dream alive. That. And it's so so true. Like especially for what we do, like. Only part of it is being on stage or auditioning or whatever, but or like being on a shoot. But like a big, big part of it is like just working kind of silently on your own or in small groups, which we can do digitally over Zoom and just like working on those building those habits and especially writing or working on your craft and stuff. Right. You could. Yeah. Watch like and watch all those series you never Mm -hmm. said you had time for. Like, I know that's a cliche, but like you like. I really, I'm excited to finally watch The Sopranos. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for a really lovely conversation. This has been so fun to catch up with you and also just like talk creativity and talk the industry and talk all the bullshit. And it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me of on, course. Angela. Of course. Thanks, Dougie. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Doug, for joining me on the podcast. We, I told you, we covered so much stuff, like the spectrum of topics. I truly, you know what? One for the books. If you take one piece of advice from this convo, listen to Doug and put in the work. You can follow Doug on social media and check out Very Own Song. I'll put the links to everything in the show notes for that. And as for this podcast, you can like and subscribe if you haven't already. I'm not going to get mad about it. Fuck, if you want to leave a review, that would be cool. 
just like hit, you know, a couple of stars, like five or so. That would be dope. <laughs> That's it for me, guys. Until next time, I'll talk to you. Bye. Hey, hey, well, wait, 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 wait. The episode is not over yet. Okay? <laughs> Instead of our traditional outro music, today I wanted to take us out with one of Doug's songs. So you can see a little bit of what he actually does and what he's so fucking good at. Here is Jackson Pollock. Yeah, this song goes out to everyone who's ever made a mess and said, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> when I drop a tea bag on the plate, Jackson Pollock. When I spill a little soap on the sink, Jackson Pollock. When I lose a bunch of change on the ground, Jackson Pollock. When I drop my coffee and it goes down, Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I make a mess, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Ay. Jackson Pollock. Ay. Jackson Pollock. When I don't know what to call it, I just call it Jackson Pollock. When I get a haircut and it falls, Jackson Pollock. When I knock over some books at the mall, Jackson Pollock. This Sally got a little out of hand, Jackson Pollock. When I enter after being in the sand, Jackson Pollock. I've been a really messy boy from the very start. When I knock over some shit, I just call it art. This is I'm making them objects, I'm shaking up when they fall down. Pictures, I'm taking them. Throw a little soup, smash a little vase. When I see a pile of leaves, I just have to pause. Wow. Dynamic. When I drop a bunch of freshly laundered clothes, Jackson Pollock. When I run through a flock of wild crows, Jackson Pollock. When I smoosh a bunch of paint with my toes, Jackson Pollock. When I blow a bunch of crap out my nose, Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I make a mess, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I don't know what to call it, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I drop some shit, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Ay. Jackson Pollock. Ay. Jackson Pollock. Ay. I'll leave it just like this, and I'll call it Jackson Pollock. Chaos is beauty. Disorder is art. Take something structured and tear it apart. Find a blank canvas and cover it fast. Now is your future. This art is your past. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I make a mess, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I don't know what to call it, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. When I drop some shit, I just call it Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. been real fun hanging out with y'all now don't forget to hit up your modern your modern art museum and uh, check out some extract abstract expressionism <laughs>